0: Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online.
1: We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today.
0: Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message.
1: This summer we're exploring selections from the book of Psalms, what has been long described as the prayer book of the Bible a collection of 150 diverse prayers and, in some cases, songs. This compilation represents both individual and also communal worship, the individual and communal worship of Jews and Christians for thousands of years. The Book of Psalms, in fact, occupies a unique place in the Bible. As the ancient theologian of the 3rd century, Ananias of Alexandria, once wrote, most of Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. These songs and prayers authentically reflect the very depths of the human condition, of what we experience day in, day out in life. More particularly, these psalms reflect how we can and how we should relate and respond to God in the midst of all of our thoughts, emotions, and questions, from joy-filled praise and confidence to sorrowful, angry confusion. In fact, last week, we learned about how the psalms give us permission to lament, to lament, to passionately and unreservedly express in the midst of our pain and our sorrow, our frustrations, our questions, even our doubts, to express all that to God. Now, hearing last week, not just that we have permission, but that we need to lament before the Lord, hearing that last week was a new insight for many of us, perhaps even a challenging one. Well, again, both culturally. And even within the history of the church, it's something new, something shocking, because within the practice of the Christian faith, we've been taught to pull ourselves together and put on a happy face, even if it's fake. But the thing is, we don't have to fake it to make it in our relationship with God. No, not at all. What the Psalms remind us is that the Lord embraces us as we are, the fullness of who and where we are, and doesn't want us to hold anything back when we engage him. Now, just how true that statement is, that there, in fact, are no boundaries in expressing ourselves to God, just how true that is, is going to be made clear today. As we look at this selection from the book of Psalms, Psalm 109, it's a representative sample from within a subset of the Psalms of Lament that we looked at last week. This group is known as the imprecatory Psalms, imprecatory. These are prayers and songs that give us license, wait for it, permission to curse, You heard that right, curse. The psalm we're about to hear will likely shock and may even offend us. It will seemingly fly in the face of what we've been taught in terms of being a good Christian. But as we listen to this off-color prayer of David, instead of moving too fast to stick the proverbial bar of soap in David's mouth, let's step back. Let's step back and wrestle with the fact that psalms like this one model Not just the kind of talk we should be avoiding, no, but the kind of talk we need to be lifting up in prayer to God. So here it is, are you ready for it? Psalm 109.
0: Today's reading comes from Psalm 109, verses one through 21. My God whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me they attack me without cause in return for my friendship they accuse me but i am a man of prayer they repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy let an accuser stand at his right hand when he is tried let him be found guilty and may his prayers condemn him may his days be few may another take his place of leadership may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for my name's sake, for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: For lots of people, especially Christians, their biggest hang-up or pet peeve is cursing, the use of foul language. Well, I guess they never read Psalms like this one, did they? Again, this is one of the imprecatory psalms, which is just a fancy way of saying the cursing prayers of the Bible. That seems odd to say the cursing prayers of the Bible. Well, imprecatory psalms center around invoking a curse upon one's enemy. In fact, if we look carefully at the heading of this particular psalm, Psalm 109, which calls for these words to be put to music, there is more. this is in fact more of a cursing psalm. I guess David forgot to affix the parental advisory warning for explicit content that's required on today's music that contains cursing. Seriously, these psalms are not for the faint of heart. They're not for those who won't stand for that kind of talk. David, the golden boy of the Old Testament to some, right? The king of Israel who anticipates the coming of Jesus. David has got quite a mouth on him in this poem. The specific situation that prompts David to write these words is unknown. We don't know. All we know from what David shares, all we know is that he has been wrongfully accused. He is being viciously slandered. He is being repeatedly attacked by an individual or a group of people. And to add injury to insult, whoever it is, they are someone whom David loves Someone who's David, David is treated with nothing but kindness and goodness. And how does David respond to being repaid, as he puts it, evil for good and hatred for his friendship? How does David respond? Well, you heard it. David severely and graphically calls for unrelenting retribution upon those who have wronged him. And we're not talking about your run of the mill, salty language here. David's curses are intense, offensive. Way more foul than the four-letter words that come out of our mouths, trust me. Mad as hell. David isn't kissing his mother with the stuff he's spewing here. No. David is incensed. And just how down and dirty does David get in this rant? He's so harsh. David's so unforgiving that he throws the proverbial book at those who have wronged him. He throws the book at them. David, notice, did you catch it? David calls down thunder and damnation, not just upon his enemies, but their families as well. David rages for them and their memory to be completely cut off, to be blotted out. David insists that there be no chance at redemption for them, that even their prayers be counted as sin What David vomits out in this song is so unsettling, in fact, that some translators of the Bible have attempted to reframe the heart of this psalm, verses 6 through 19. They've tried to reframe it as not being David's word against his enemies, but rather the list of grievances that David has against them. Some Bible translations, the NSRV, for example, try to add, they say, at verse 6, at the start of this litany, they uh, they say, trying to shift all these curses as not coming from David's lips, but instead from the lips of his enemies. But there's no, there's no textual support in the original Hebrew language for this insertion, for this addition, for making this proposed shift in focus. No, as we uncomfortably work our way through the somewhat something like, I don't know, 24 curses, 24 curses that are called down by David in verses 6 through 20, it's kind of hard to reconcile this idea that David's been talking about what someone else has done rather than what he wants God to do to his enemies. The sustained cursing in this psalm is so strong that writers like C.S. Lewis, when looking at this particular passage, remarked, It strikes us in the face like heat from the mouth of a furnace. What are we to do with a psalm like this? I mean, perhaps it would be easier if we could write off Psalm 109 as an outlier, you know, as a one-off. You know, the only prayer or song within this collection that has such harsh, vindictive things to say in God's name. But as I mentioned, Psalm 109 is but one of many such songs and prayers in this book that make up an entire category known for cursing one's enemies and then having the audacity to praise the Lord. In fact, other major imprecatory psalms like uh, Psalm 69 or Psalm 137 ask God to dash the heads of Babylonian children against the rocks. They ask God would not listen to the prayers of those who are wicked. In fact, interestingly, Part of this psalm, Psalm 109, is quoted in the book of Acts. It's quoted in the book of Acts, the very first chapter, you can go look it up, as part of the rationale for replacing Judas. The words of this cursing song are used to frame Judas as the would-be villain in the Gospels. Judas is framed as the lone bad guy, even though all of the disciples betrayed Jesus in their own way when Christ was arrested and went to the cross. But again, what what do we do with these psalms? What are we to make of songs and prayers that curse, that invoke a violent reckoning upon the wicked, broken and ripped out teeth, that invoke one's enemy melting like a slug, becoming like a stillborn child, or dipping your feet in the blood of the wicked, these are all quotes from these imprecatory psalms. These don't seem like the type of things that nice Christians should be praying or singing, let alone saying. I mean, I don't remember. I I don't remember growing up in the church, you know, in Sunday school as a child, and being taught stuff like this, that stuff like this was on the list of all the possible things you could pray to God for. Raining down curses on my enemy, humbly asking that my enemy's children become fatherless or his spouse a widow? Doesn't a song like this fly in the face of Jesus' call to forgive and love our enemies? Doesn't a song like this fly in the face of the Apostle Paul's admonition in Romans to bless those who persecute us, to bless rather than to curse? As a father, I'd immediately correct my children for uttering such petitions in the name of the Lord, but here they are as the inspired word of God. Shouldn't psalms like these be on the blacklist of prayers? Is Psalm 109 and others like it, these imprecatory psalms, are they giving us inspired scriptural permission to curse those who have wronged us? Is this what God wants? The answer is yes and no. Even as we remain unnerved by David's talk here, let's make a few observations about what David says and doesn't say, as well as why. First off, David's curses, you'll notice, are not a call for judgment against the innocent. They are a cry for retribution against the wicked, those who are doing evil, engaging in abuse, spreading lies, and betraying the bonds of friendship. David and the other authors of these imprecatory Psalms They have a strong sense of right and wrong. But here's the thing. Their sense of right and wrong is not based on their own definition of what's right and wrong. Their sense of right and wrong is rooted in their understanding of God's character and purpose. To put this another way, their anger and indignation expressed in these songs is not about their personal opinions, their personal preferences, or their comfort zone being offended. Their anger and their indignation have to do with the violation of shalom, Hebrew word that means the way life's supposed to be, the way God created our lives together to function. Again, that Hebrew word shalom means wholeness, harmony, well-being. And this idea of shalom in the Hebrew is not just in an individual sense. You know, I'm good. It's in a communal sense, an all-creation sense. Together, we're good. To a Jew, anything, that disrupts or disturbs Shalom is not just a violation against the individual, it's a violation of the community. Notice, notice how in the first five verses of Psalm 109, David begins by lamenting his own mistreatment by others, right, the first five verses. But then starting in verse 16, do you catch it? David extends his lament to include crying out on behalf of the poor and needy. The poor and needy who have been wronged and hurt by the lack of neighborly love. Rightly understood to disturb or disrupt shalom is not just a violation against the individual, it's a violation against the community, the way things are supposed to be. And so ultimately it's a violation, it's an offense against God. If we worship a God who is just, then injustice is an attack against the Lord. Injustice violates the sacred trust upon which God seeks for authentic community to be built. If we worship a God of peace who engages us out of love and with forgiveness, then any and all manipulation, any and all falsehood, any and all abuse, any and all oppression or violence toward others, these are all breaches of our relationship with the Lord. Violence in all its forms, whether through manipulation, falsehood, abuse, or oppression. Violence propagates a life lived together out of fear and defensiveness and violates. Violence, violate, they're related, violates the kind of life God intended for us to share. A life of faith, of mutual openness, care, protection, and generosity. If we worship a God who creates all that is good, that's what we proclaim, then any damage we inflict on each other and creation itself defiles and desecrates what God has made, what is good, rather than respecting and honoring it. You see, injustice, violence, the damage we inflict, either willfully or from our indifference, all of these things are expressions of evil, They are manifestations of wickedness. They are the breaking of shalom. They are an affront to the redemptive will and restorative purposes of God in our lives and in this world. And therefore, don't miss this. They amount to nothing less than an attack on the Lord while what David is experiencing is personal to him. We see that in the first five verses. His own sense of being has been wronged. What David ultimately cries out for is the vindication of God's righteousness for the life and world to be set right, for evil and wickedness to be removed from existence. Now, we can presume to sit in judgment on David for his words here. We might even be embarrassed Perhaps even a tad pious, you know, to imagine we'd ever sing or pray words like these. Until we find ourselves as fed up or as outraged as David. And as much as we may hate to admit it, sometimes the words coming out of our mouths sure sound a lot like David's, don't they? When we ourselves have the experience we've been treated without any dignity or honor, when we've been neglected, abused, or assassinated in some manner, let alone if we witness someone else, right, being denigrated, someone else being marginalized or wronged. There's this deep, unflinching sense of righteous indignation that rises up within us, often reaching to a boiling point where we cannot help but to speak or act, pushing back in some way. This isn't right. This is wrong. There are moments when we just can't take it anymore. When we need to express our frustration, our disquiet, our rage against the injustices of this world. Cursing language is coarse and profane. It's supposed to be. Profane, the origins of that word profane convey the notion of being outside the temple. Profane has to do with being outside what is sacred, pure, and holy. Profane expression corresponds to profane experience. Dirty talk conveys that what has happened, that what is happening, is disordered. It's undesirable. Dirty talk conveys it's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that God intends it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I all of a sudden giving license for you to just start throwing out cursing? My friends, there's a difference between dropping curses into our speech to be provocative and edgy versus doing so to call out something as wrong, something as violating shalom, violating the way the Lord created life to be what the hell that's a curse that's not the way life's supposed to be there's a difference between advocating for the equitable and respectful treatment of all persons which also includes me and you there's a difference between that and getting hot bothered and a little salty because I'm not getting my way I'm not getting the attention and recognition I believe I deserve Because my opinions, my preferences, and my desires are not being validated or satisfied to my liking. There's a difference. There's a difference between cursing out of righteous anger, out of love for the gospel, for that which is true and good for all the world. There's a difference between that and cursing out of malicious intent, venomously seeking to harm another person, vindictively looking to get our pound of flesh. And this leads us, To a second important observation about this cursing psalm, while we only read aloud the first 21 verses, if your Bibles are still open, if we follow this song, this prayer to its conclusion, we clearly see that David doesn't take matters into his own hands. While he expresses these curses, David does not seek to administer these curses himself. David calls upon the Lord. David calls upon the Lord God in his own way and God in his own time to pass judgment and to bring justice. And this is not just the pattern of this Psalm, but it's the pattern of all the imprecatory Psalms of unabashedly crying out for retribution, calling down the thunder, but always leaving it to the Lord and to the Lord alone to control the weather, to right the wrongs, to restore shalom. In other words, The imprecatory or cursing psalms are not about enacting personal vengeance. They are about seeking divine retribution. And there's a big difference between the two. Personal vengeance is about taking vengeance, taking revenge. It's about indulging our desire to give bad people what we think they deserve. Divine retribution is about God alone knowing what is right, God alone judging the situation, and God enacting not blind justice, but true justice. This is important because increasingly we live in a society that is deeply geared towards vengeance, revenge. Satisfying the thirst for revenge, for payback, is heralded in the stories we tell and we watch for entertainment. The gotcha moments, getting someone back, taking matters into our own hands, knocking somebody else out before they can knock you down is not advice that's generally frowned upon no it's argued as the only way to survive and to get ahead in this world and this reality of vengeance is reflected reflected in the extremity of road rage Just in the simple act of getting from here to there, road rage, this reality is witnessed in the rise of domestic violence against women, children, foreigners, people of color, members of the LGBTQI community. This reality of vengeance is unmistakably evident in our harsh communal punishments, including capital punishment, wherein the aim of our prison system is not restorative justice, but penal justice, punishment. This reality is undeniably obvious in our political sphere right as the name of the game among both parties is not to work together but to up one each other up to attack each other all in the name of what's best for the nation as we've been reminded this past week through the sobering testimony related to what happened in our nation's capital on january 6th for some the assertion of vengeance is not only a right, the assertion of vengeance is not only an expression of our freedom, but the assertion of vengeance is worshipped as an act of patriotism, wrong. In a world without God, if we believe we're right, and especially if we believe we've been wronged in a world without God, then getting vengeance is not only perceived as a viable option, it's forcefully argued to be our obligation. Whether it's outrage over another mass shooting or outrage because of the laws that are being proposed for gun control, whether it's indignation over a perpetual cycle of abuse and injustice towards a particular gender, race, or ethnic group, or because of frustration, being sick and tired of having to be more culturally sensitive, sick and tired of having to be politically correct, sick and tired of hearing about my privilege, whether it's fury over a contested election and being convinced our country's being stolen and has to be taken back. Or because we're alarmed that our country is being threatened and needs to be protected. All that anger, that type of anger that desires vengeance, it's a real human emotion. And it's one apart from the Council of the Psalms that we feed And we satisfy in dangerous and destructive ways. On our own, apart from God, we either act upon such anger or we attempt to deny its presence. If we act upon it, if we take revenge, we don't make things better. We only make things worse. If we take revenge, we're not honoring or protecting God. We're defiantly spitting in the face of God. And if we deny our anger, burying it deep inside, pretending it doesn't exist. If we do that, we turn ourselves into ticking time bombs. Because inevitably, eventually, we will either implode, destroying ourselves from the inside, our body and our mind breaking under all that stress, trying to choke and manage all that anger, or finally, one day, we will explode in one seismic eruption or through a series of prolonged, just as damaging bursts. We will unleash all those bottled up frustrations, turning someone who doesn't deserve it, maybe even a bunch of random, random people who aren't prepared for it, we will turn them into casualties, victims of all our dormant, unfiltered rage. Hear this, the problem is not with the anger. There's nothing wrong with being angry that life, that this world is not all that it's supposed to be. It's not all that we sense deep in our bones. It can be. There's nothing wrong with the anger. To deny that anger is to deny the injustice, the violence, the damage we plainly see all around us. That anger, righteous anger, is God-given. And it's meant to grab our attention before the temptation to wrap ourselves in our cocoon and isolate ourselves from each other. That anger, righteous anger, calls us to keep longing and working for change by the grace of God, rather than turning a blind eye and just going our own way. That anger, that righteous anger, leads us to the cross. The love of God, which is stronger than evil, which conquers evil through forgiveness, which overcomes the greatest wrong of all, death itself, that anger. Righteous anger compels us to keep following Jesus and through the gift of the word and the spirit to become like Christ, to embody the way, truth, and life of Jesus and participate in God's promise of a better world, a more just, peaceful, and ultimately redeemed world. That anger, righteous anger, is God given, which means it needs to be directed back to God. We cannot take matters into our own hands because we cannot, by ourselves, fix all that is wrong in this world. We can't fix all that is not right in us. Do you notice David curses? He articulates his anger. He doesn't deny his thirst for vengeance, no. But in the end, David gives all that anger. David surrenders that impulse towards revenge and puts himself, puts his life, puts this world in God's hands. David prays through cursing. No way around it. David prays through cursing. He acknowledges his anger even as he recognizes through cursing his inability to deal properly with the wickedness of his adversaries. David does not put his faith in his own ability to set things right, but instead turns all that anger into an offering. Trusting God to do what only God can do rightly, what only God is responsible for, passing judgment and executing final justice. David, in fact, asserts that both the Lord's justice and judgment will come out of God's unfailing love. Love that does not ignore what is wrong. Love that reckons with what is wrong, but love that is able to bring good out of evil. Psalms like these, the imprecatory Psalms, give us permission to be angry, even to curse. That's right. Songs and prayers like Psalm 109 encourage us not to hold back our anger, but also not to act upon it toward others. There is a significant difference between cursing the evil that people do and calling down curses on people who are just as broken, just as flawed, and yet just as worthy of redemption as we are. It's far better, far healthier for us to express all that profanity, however, rather than to let it fester and overtake us. The point of psalms like these is learning to release that anger, our anger, toward the one who we cannot injure or harm with it. Maybe if I reserved my foul language for God, I'd speak more lovingly toward my brother or sister in Christ. Maybe if I let off steam with my Father, my Heavenly Father, I'd be less inclined to nail those I profess to love to the wall and crucify Christ anew. Maybe we don't need to shy away from such talk as much as we need to express it toward the right person. The point of psalms like these is learning to release our anger to the only one who can do something about it. We are directing our ill-conceived rants toward the God who in Christ turns the ultimate curse of the cross into the very instrument of our redemption rightly understood, these are prayers of relinquishment. We're letting our anger be shaped and focused by God so that all the frustrations and indignations we have are not self-centered, but Christ-centered, formed and expressed around the Lord's vision and promise of shalom, again, of justice, peace, and harmony. Prayers and songs like Psalm 109 are not the prayers and songs of nice Christians but they are the prayers and songs of real Christians, of followers of Jesus who believe, who long, who hope, and who embody the gospel's assurance of the dawn of a better world. So rather than taking matters into our own hands, let us pray, yes, even curse like David, leaving leaving the reckoning of the matter in the Lord's hands and not ours, trusting that God will do what is right right by us, and right for all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.